It's 1918. World War I is over. And nations across Europe and Asia lie in ruins. Revolution is sweeping through Europe, removing monarchies that have been in power, in some cases, for centuries. As societies look to rebuild, the Italian journalist Benito Mussolini, formerly a socialist, writes a radical political manifesto suggesting an entirely new form of government. His authoritarian regime will be ruled by a single supreme leader. Individual rights will be stripped for the good of the greater society. His far-right, militant state would restore a nationalistic greatness. It's an idea he calls fascism. Ten years later, another World War I veteran, Adolf Hitler, comes to power at the head of his own form of fascism, what he calls National Socialism, or Nazism. Together, these two men set into motion the largest conflict in human history, attempting to create a global fascist world order. We know today how this story ends. Millions of innocent people will die, caught in the crossfire of fascist rule during World War II. But one part of this story is largely forgotten. We forget that fascism had countless followers right here in the United States. And even today, there are people who want to keep the flame of fascism alive. My name is Bradley W. Hart. I'm the author of the award-winning book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. This is the Star-Spangled Fascism Podcast. It was exciting. I mean, fascism was seen as the wave of the future, was seen as the modernizing path that would get us to happy economic days ahead. The term fascism gets thrown around a lot these days. Most often it's meant as a form of political insult. But that wasn't always the case. During the 1920s and 1930s, there were Americans who openly identified themselves as fascist, or embraced fascist ideologies, or hoped to inspire nationwide movements right here in the U.S. And alongside my own research on these characters, one individual has recently stepped up to become an authority on the rise of fascism in America. My very special guest on the first episode of Star-Spangled Fascism is the one and only Rachel Maddow, host of The Rachel Maddow Show, airing Mondays at 9 p.m. on MSNBC. In 2022, Rachel did the absolutely fantastic podcast series Ultra that I was lucky enough and privileged enough to take part in. Thank you again for that, Rachel. Absolutely. 2023, you published the best-selling book, Prequel, um, which has done a number of weeks on the bestseller chart, a book that that I learned a lot from, even as a historian. So first off, congrats. Congratulations on all, all the success with this material, Rachel. Um, you know, I think what one thing that I reflect on a lot as a historian is that the 1930s is a really difficult time in American history. I mean, 1933 is really the depths of the Great Depression. Unemployment hits nearly 25% in the first year that Franklin Roosevelt is in office, um, and if, in fact caps 25% in some parts of the country. This is a period where a lot of Americans desperately need economic relief, but it's simply not coming. And at the same time, we have the rise of, of fascism in Europe. The Soviet Union, of course, has uh, been around for a while at this point. Um, but I think you and I have both been intrigued by, by Americans who sort of fall in to sympathizing or being involved with fascism in some way. I guess the, the question that I think about a lot, and, and I suspect you might too, is what is the appeal of fascism for, for at least some Americans in the 1930s? Well, first of all, Bradley, let me just say, this is so exciting that you're doing this podcast. I'm really, really, really looking forward to um, hearing all of it. Um, and, I, and I can't wait to see how you develop this. Uh, and I'm honored to be here. Um, on, on that first question... I think that it's 
I sort of look at it from, from two directions. One is that there was obviously an international wind blowing at that time. Um, whether it was generated by the worldwide depression um, or whether it was happening um, as a sort of, you know, as a political tide that was cresting for other reasons. We had, you know, Mussolini in Italy and we had Franco in Spain and we had Hitler in in Germany and all of those winds that were driving um, countries toward autocracy and specifically toward fascism were blowing here too. While fascism is is nationalistic, I don't think there's any one particular nation or one type of nation that is more prone to it than others. And so I think that Americans were susceptible to the allure of fascism for all the reasons that people were susceptible to it in other countries. I think that the harder thing for us to sort of sit with as Americans is that there have been fascistic tendencies, fascistic movements um, in America and in American power for longer than we like to admit. Um, I think that there's really good arguments to make about the Klan having been a fascistic movement um, in the days before fascism, even as a word, was, was, was coined. And I think that the allure of authoritarianism, the idea of anti-democratic, authoritarian, nationalist, race-based nationalist rule is something that different American groups and demagogues have played with for a long time. Americans in significant numbers have liked these ideas for a long time and in, in recurrent cycles in our in our history. I, I think what you just said is really fascinating in the sense that we have to remember that fascism was a brand new ideology in a lot of ways in the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, this was an idea, Mussolini only takes power in late 1922, and he in a lot of ways originates fascism as an ideology. Hitler himself only takes power in January of 1933, and of course people at the time don't really know how this is going to play out. You know, millions of people haven't yet died in World War II, and so there is something of, you know, people not knowing how the story is going to end in that sense. That, that can give fascism, I think, some kind of an allure. Yeah, and, it's, um, I, and it seems it also seems you know it's a new word. Fascism is a new word. It's a new concept, and it's these movements of rel- led by relatively young leaders. It's old countries with young leaders leading often youth-driven mass movements, and people looking at that from the outside, and especially in a country that's fallen on hard times or that's um, where, where people are susceptible to to arguments that their system of government is not up to the task. They look at those things and it was exciting. I mean, fascism was seen as the wave of the future, was seen as the modernizing um, path that would get us to to happy economic days ahead and a sense of community and a sense of nationhood and all of those things. It was, let's pursue fascism here because it's the way that we're going to improve things for all Americans. Absolutely. I mean, very much this idea um, that I've found throughout a lot of the characters I've looked at, that this is an ideology that's supposed to sort of bring back a a sense of past greatness. But, you know, I think that the cast of characters you talk about in in Ultra and Prequel is really fascinating. And I've I've looked into a few of these these characters as well. I want to ask you just about a a few of these figures that may not be widely remembered by people today. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of these characters have kind of fallen into the dustbin of history, mm. um, reputationally or just in terms of us remembering them at all. Uh, Lawrence Dennis being one of these characters. I mean, Lawrence Dennis, to me, a fascinating figure, seen as kind of the intellectual godfather in some ways of fascism in the United States. You talk about him quite a bit in in your book. Why is Lawrence Dennis such an important figure, and, and why do you think people just don't remember who this guy was at all today? Lawrence Dennis... Um 
is a fascinating figure for a million reasons, for million political reasons and also personal reasons. Let's start with some of the personal stuff first, I think, just because you got to get it. You, you got to give people a sense of who he was as a man. Um, Lawrence Dennis actually spent a good part of his very young life as an internationally renowned traveling child preacher. He was born to a father who I was listed in his birth certificate as mixed race and mm-hmm. a mother uh, who was listed in records as, uh, as black, as African-American. He himself uh, was light-skinned as a young man, as a kid. Um, he identified as African-American and, and traveled the world as this miraculous black preacher, ch- child preacher. Um, once he was of... Uh, sort of boarding school age, he decided he would pass as white. And then for uh, almost until the end of his life, passed as white, and it would come as very shocking news to people who followed him in the fascist movements that he was part of starting in the 1930s to know that he was uh, was not white himself. Um, He had been a State Department employee. He um, worked in Wall Street. He was an economist. He was incredibly intelligent. He had a personality that caused um, lots of people to want to become acolytes of his. People followed him like apostles. Um, People also fell in love with him. (laughs) Men and women um, of all different strata fell in love with him. A lot of famous people um, allowed Lawrence Dennis to become their ghostwriter. Um, so he was just, he just loomed very large. He was sort of the brain of the fascist movement. And he wrote The Coming American Fascism, which is the closest thing that I think American intellectual history has to a Bible of, um, uh, of, of fascism as an American possibility for a new form of government here. And I think one thing that really fascinates me about about Dennis is that personal dynamism that you're talking about. I mean, this is a man who kind of lived off the cuff for for most of his life, it seems like, befriended a lot of very powerful and influential people, um, sort of made money off of newsletters and public speeches and and things of this sort, but didn't seem to really hold down much of a a traditional job in that sense. And and this, I think, is one thing I've noticed about a lot of these leaders in the U.S. is that they they aren't really – they're very dynamic, number one, which is something that's true of Hitler and Mussolini, but but they – really have these non-traditional careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and another example of this, of course, is, is William Dudley Pelly, another man who sort of is this larger-than-life figure. He's a former Hollywood screenwriter turned fascist leader. Um, and one thing that I've been thinking about recently is that the, this group that he founds, the Silver Legion, that you talk about in, in Chapter 7 of, of a prequel, really resembles in some ways Christian nationalism in, in the way that it is being sort of politically defined somewhat in our own time. Uh, what was your read on on William Dudley Pelley, someone we're going to talk about extensively in the podcast series here? Um, and, and I think in some ways he, he might even have a, a longer staying power than someone like a dentist in terms of relevance to our own time today. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, it, it's also when you think about Dennis and Pelly as as two characters, thinking about them as a kind of a pair, the way that you're positing it, to think yeah. about money and how it is that they made a living. I mean, one of the ways that Lawrence Dennis was able to make a living as a essentially fascist public intellectual is that the Nazis were paying him. <laughs> the, the German government in Berlin was funneling money to him for various publications and newsletters, including through, um, you know, their, their, their agents in the United States. Like, well, that helped. With Pelly, on the other hand, um, the way that he made his money was off of a sort of quasi-spiritualist occult grift 
where he told people that he had uh, died or somehow otherwise visited the afterlife, that he basically was an antenna tuned directly into messages from God. And these weren't just voices in his head. One of the things that God did, according to Pelly, was that he dictated books to William Dudley Pelly, and Pelly didn't even understand what he was writing down, but it was dictated to him by God, and he would write these <laughs> books, and then you, for a, for, a, for a very reasonable fee, could buy these books <laughs> from William Dudley Pelly. You could go to his sham university um, and take an entire curriculum of things dictated to William Dudley Pelly by, um, by, the, by, the, by the Great Spirit. Um, and so there's a there's a ridiculous factor and a, and, a, and a grifter scam factor to William Dudley Pelly. Also, the fact that his Silver Legion had a, a dumb looking uniform and everybody wore uniforms that also gives him sort of a weirdo factor. All of those things are alienating, I think, in terms of trying to take him mm-hmm. seriously as a public figure. But then you look at the influence of the Silver Legion. It's thousands of followers, tens of thousands, perhaps, you know, something close to like 100,000 sympathizers and people who are hangers-on of that movement, while he's telling them to, you know, stockpile guns and ammunition, and they are, and they're training for a Christian nationalist violent overthrow of the U.S. government in conjunction with other armed fascist and, and, and pro-German groups. And the idea is to cleanse the world, cleanse America of, of non-Christians, specifically of Jews, um, and to institute a Fuhrer system under Pelly. And it sounds bananas, but it's amazing the number of people that he persuaded um, to, his, to his plan. And the, the publications are insane. They still circulate on the right today. I mean, on the far right today, both Lawrence Dennis and William Dudley Pelly are still widely read and still circulating. It's just uh, sort of in, in Normieville that, that they've descended to obscurity. Well, and, you know, Pelly has this interesting involvement with sort of the early UFO movement as well later on. I mean, some of the automatic writing that he's talking about, which is this idea of, you know, dictating things from spirits and you're holding someone's hand and sort of writing these things down. I mean, those books, as you say, read really bonkers to us, but in some ways they feed into the emergence of of sort of the UFO movement um, in the 1950s. And And that that stuff was really fashionable at the time, you know? Very, very fashionable. And, and, and I've heard that there are recordings of him actually doing seances. I have not yet tracked any of those down. Oh, but, please uh, call me if you find them. <laughs> please. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so so I, mean, I think religion is a big part of this, obviously. I mean, you know, the idea of Christianity being intermixed with sort of Pelly's strange ideas about politics. This is something we see across a number of these figures. Uh, and the big media figure, of course, who, who uses this is, is Father Charles Coughlin, who I argue in my book is probably the most successful radio host in American history, a man who did an audience upward probably of 25 million people in a country about half the size of what it is today. I mean, this would be enormous ratings, as we would put it now. Um, and you talk a lot about Coughlin and, and his Christian Front Movement, as it's called, or a Christian Front Movement associated with him in Chapter 13 of your book. Um, you know, fr- from a sort of media history perspective, how should we think about Coughlin and the movement that he really inspires in this period? Coughlin, I think you are completely right, cannot be underestimated in terms of his influence, the historic size of his audience and his reach. And when you combine that with his radicalism, with what he was preaching by the time you get to the late 30s, by the time you get to 1938, 
it's just, there just isn't any other thing like it. I mean, Bradley, I know you know that when you write about this era and you write about fascism in America, a lot of people want to find modern doppelgangers for these historical figures. Um, There's no modern doppelganger for Charles Coughlin. And I don't think that we ever will have somebody that powerful with that much of a reach again. But Coughlin was uh, overtly preaching fascism. He used the word. He said that um, he would talk about needing bullets when the ballot box failed. He talked about the Franco way being, meaning a, a, a military dictatorship as the the way that American democracy would end and would instead have a have a dictator. Um, he organized his followers into platoon-style militia groups, um, one of which was put on trial for sedition for an alleged plot to murder multiple congressmen and set off a uh, series of politically sensitive bombings and killings that would uh, start a state of emergency and ultimately result in the military takeover, a, su- a paramilitary takeover of the government first in New York and then in Washington. I mean, it was really, really radical what he was preaching and what he was asking his followers to do. And it was very theologically informed. Charles Gallagher's book, Nazis in Copley Square, Mm-hmm. Um, does a great job. Charles Gallagher uh, is an eminent historian and also a Jesuit priest himself. himself. And he does a really good job talking about how the, the theology of the Coughlin movement and the Christian front was something that they took seriously and what they were trying to do at a time before the Catholic Church considered anti-Semitism to be a sin is they were trying to leverage um, Nazi-style anti-Semitism, um, anti-Semitic propaganda, and Catholic theology around violent resistance to tyranny um, to encourage Catholic followers of Charles Coughlin to take up arms against FDR, who was posited as a, as a sort of biblical-level tyrant. And it was incredibly radical and incredibly far-reaching. And it's just, there's nothing else, there's nothing else like that um, today, and I, I don't know there ever will be. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And I think what's interesting about Coughlin as well is he wasn't just a radio host. He had a newspaper, yeah. social justice was distributed all over the country. I mean, in some ways, he was one of the first people to realize the power of combining media formats into a, a kind of multimedia empire, effectively, to involve both publications and radio. Um, and I've always thought, you know, what would Father Coughlin have been like on social media? You know, how would we have used these platforms had he lived in a different time in in ways that would be deeply uncomfortable, I think, to, to most Americans? It's interesting, uh, too, in, that the, the gate. Know, keeping role of the the Catholic Church there too, right? When we think about what stops movements like this, what stops demagogues, what interferes with the kind of reach and radicalism that we're describing, um, I think inarguably the Catholic Church deciding that Father Coughlin would no longer make broadcasts like this was just like a, a, a steel door coming down on him as a political figure. And, um, there are very few circumstances in which something that like that, something that's so much a gatekeeping role like that, can be employed um, against somebody who's doing that kind of damage in an anti-democratic way. He's just a really singular character, I think. I agree. And, and, you know, the Catholic Church just kind of, as you say, slams the door shut. The hierarchy says you're no longer making radio broadcasts, and, and he's not because that's, that's the nature of, of the church hierarchy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, one, one figure that I think is closely related here, who who himself kind of fulfills a gatekeeping role because of his immense wealth and his prominence in American society, is Henry Ford. And you talk about Henry Ford in your book. You know, a lot of Americans, if they remember Henry Ford today, think about him as the inventor of the assembly line, which he, which he is, the creator of, of a major motor vehicle company. What is Henry Ford's role in all this? I've always seen him as taking this sort of important, almost background role, but also in the 1920s playing a really key role in the spread of especially anti-Semitism. In yeah, the US. that's right. And, you know, I feel like my my education on Henry Ford continues. I mean, I... I, I <laughs> Obviously, thought um, that. Full, I mean, full disclosure: I drive a Ford, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, 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 th- I think I knew of him as an anti-Semite, as an anti-Semite. But I assumed it was like a personal vice. I assumed that it was his mm-hmm. personal prejudice. Uh, I didn't know it was an animating force in his life. Um, I think I even knew that there were questions about Ford's sympathies or at least softness toward Nazi Germany. And I assumed that had something to do with him, you know, wanting to keep the Ford plant open in Cologne um, that the Nazis were using to build vehicles for their land invasion of Czechoslovakia. Like I assumed it was a sort of a business interest cravenness there. What I didn't realize is that Henry Ford was, I think, inarguably the greatest anti-Semitic propagandist in the English language in the history of the world. I mean, his Dearborn Independent, um, which he um, bought in the 20s, became a nationwide fire hose of the most potent, most dangerous anti-Semitic propaganda the world has ever known. He, He serialized the entirety of this famous hoax called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. He republished essays based on the protocols in a four volume book set, which was published in, I think it was a dozen different languages in a dozen different countries. The German language version of that had gone through multiple printings by the time um, Hitler became chancellor in Germany. Chancellor Hitler uh, name-checked Henry Ford in the first edition of Mein Kampf as kind of his inspiration. He kept a large painting, a portrait of, of Henry Ford in his office. Um, Ford was not just somebody whose who's private interest in anti-Semitism or toward Nazi sympathy are, are of interest of, of him just in terms of his biography. He was a player. He was a man who made things happen. That The, the founder of the Hitler Youth credits uh, Henry Ford's writings with uh, making him anti-Semitic, with opening his eyes to the Jewish problem. That's um, that's a remarkable legacy. His his legacy mattered in the United States, and it mattered well beyond our borders. And it's really a shocking part of American history, I think, that this man who, again, this really man who helps invent the American automotive industry, one of the great industrialists of the 20th century without doubt, holds these views that, as you say, are not just private views, but they're views that really affect international politics mm-hmm. in, in very profound ways. Which he's trying to do. That's his aim. Which he's right? trying to yeah. do. And I mean, one of the things that you write about in, in Hitler's American Friends and that I also um, talked to you about for, for, for the podcast for Ultra was the... Um, um, the Nazi propaganda scheme that was run through Congress in which they yeah. took propaganda often written in Berlin, <laughs> uh, translated for an American audience, and they used various congressional offices to distribute that um, throughout the United States to propagandize the American people. One of the sort of side stories in that whole scandal was the way that Ford assigned 
Ford Motor Company personnel and resources to build out massive nationwide mailing lists to send all that stuff to. Um, And, you know, it was a secret effort run out of Ford Motor Company offices, unmarked doors and the whole thing. Uh, Investigative journalists at the time sort of sussed it out and and reverse engineered and figured out that they were doing that. But it wasn't just Ford personally. It was was the, the resources of the Ford Motor Company, too, that were used to supercharge the Nazis' propaganda effort effort, um, that targeted the the American people. Absolutely. So, yeah, this is not just a personal vendetta or a personal view that he holds. This is something that that he absolutely puts his money where his mouth is, uh, so to speak, in in that sense. You know, one thing that we want to talk about in this podcast series is not just the people who fell into fascism or the people who sympathize within the U.S., but also the heroes, really, in my mind, and I think your mind as well, who stood up against it. You mentioned journalists, and of course, journalists played an incredibly important role in exposing this, as you talk about in both Ultra um, and in prequel. But one of the other heroes um, that, that that I've always been fascinated by is, is John Rogge, who, who is this Department of Justice official. What have you found on, on John Rogge? Um, and, and how do you feel about this, I think, really fascinating figure in American history, who, who again, I think deserves to be better known? Rogge is a, a one of the most complex, interesting, intriguing, impossible-to-know figures that I've ever spent significant time looking at. He was a um, sort of a wonderkind at the U.S. Justice Department. He became a very high-ranking Justice Department official at a very young age. He had all of these incredible notches in his belt. After after Huey Long was assassinated in Louisiana in 1935, it was Rogge who was sent down to Louisiana by the Justice Department um, to bust up the long corruption and graft machine, which everybody thought was absolutely impossible, and Raggy against death threats and intimidation and this incredibly wired system in Louisiana that was all stacked against the idea that anybody could come in from outside and bust it up. He absolutely busted it up and put everybody in jail. It was a national hero for doing that. Um, he was involved in the Christian Front sedition trial in 1940, which was a spectacular failure. Uh, the, the New York Christian Front chapter that was put on trial for sedition, Raggy was the brought in from Washington to be the sort of supervising prosecutor there, and it failed. He was then the prosecutor um, brought in to, to, to bring the Great Sedition Trial of 1944 to trial. That, of course, famously ended in a mistrial when the judge died in the middle of the trial. It's a crazy story. Um, But in the end, what Raggi ends up contributing to our understanding um, is what he is able to assemble from the evidence that was put together for that trial and what he was able to assemble after the war was over, after the judge had died, after that trial had essentially gone poof. Raggi went to Germany and he was a native German speaker. His parents were German immigrants. He'd grown up speaking German at home. That proved to be very handy. He almost single-handedly went through tens of thousands of pages of German government files and um, was able to interview German war criminal defendants and basically put together documentation from the German side as to which Americans they were working with and who they were funding and what their aims were. And having that kind of... I mean, you know, try to prove collusion. It's one thing to try to prove it from the American side. To be able to prove it from the from the foreign side, it's just amazing that he was able to do it. And he brought that evidence back to the United States and ran right into the buzzsaw of its political implications because there were two dozen members of 
Congress and, and U.S. senators who were who were named in his report along with a bunch of very powerful business interests. And so Raggi's sort of post-war life ends up being this very interesting story of trying to get that information out there. Um, historians like yourself, people who are interested in the story like me, uh, end up benefiting from that that self-sacrificing work that he did. But it was it was really the end of his career as a public national figure. Well, I think we might consider you a historian at this point, Rachel, at least in, in this stuff. I mean, you, you've, you've done an incredible job, I think, bringing this story to life. And one thing that we're hoping to do in this podcast is kind of follow in your footsteps by bringing these people's voices back effectively. I thought you did a fantastic job in Ultra using archival audio. And I think I mentioned when I was on your show, I'd never heard a lot of these people's voices before. And so we're hoping to do the same thing in, in, oh, in this series That's in our great. own way of, yeah. of trying to let these people be heard. Um, I think one, one question that I get a lot um, is why is this history not better known? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that I started doing this research was that I, when I was teaching history classes, I couldn't find any of this stuff in the textbooks. Mm-hmm. And I was finding evidence about this in the archives. So why do you think this history wasn't better known prior to, to people like you and I and, and some others coming along and telling these stories? I want to interview you on that same topic. <laughs> I want to, well, let's do it. Well, let's do it. Well, let me, let me, I mean, before I give you sort of my take on it, I actually want, uh, do you feel like you know? Do you feel like you have figured out why this history shrunk to such a, a, a tiny size um, among academic historians and and in the popular memory? Do you have a thesis about it? Yeah, well, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, I think the first one is that I think this is deeply uncomfortable history. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, this is not comfortable for people who, um, you know, study American history, who have thought about American history in a lot of ways. It's like studying the history of, of other extremist groups like the Ku Klux Klan. It, it just doesn't really make you feel good. So I think that's maybe the more obvious answer. I think the less obvious one, though, is is comes out of 19 late 1940s early 1950s America that we really go straight from the end of the war in 1945 into the cold war mm-hmm. there's there's really no break there and these groups as as controversial and as as bad as they were in terms of um, committing subversion um, and undermining the war effort mm-hmm. they weren't communists and so when the shift immediately moves towards focusing on communist subversion which it does almost immediately I think it's it's very easy to kind of sweep these stories under the rug. And I think a corollary of that is that a lot of these people lived out their lives in the United States. These were people's next door neighbors. They were their friends. They were people who they knew from church or from social institutions or from or from country clubs or things like that. And so, you know, this is kind of history that isn't great to talk about, I think, in the 1950s and 60s. And the government kind of loses interest in in looking into it as well. That's that's my theory. What do you think? No, I think I think that's very astute and very right. And I and I think that the um, idea that fascism is okay if you call it anti-communism <laughs> is yes. something that you have to just like you have to be alert to that throughout American modern history um, because that recurs over and over and over again. Um, and I mean, I think that obviously looking back at the World War II era, it's not just that this is an uncomfortable topic. It's that the alternative (laughs) to think about America as unified in our anti-fascist passions and we all believed in the good war and we all knew exactly what to do and it was inevitable that we were going to confront Hitler and Mussolini. I mean, that just feels great. So it's not just that Mm -hmm. we don't want to opt to learn the uncomfortable thing. It's that the other option um, feels the the sort of the, the reductive myth 
of an anti-fascist unified America in the lead up to World War II just feels too good to not keep um, to not keep going back to that. Academic history, I feel like, once this was sort of characterized. Um, decades ago as as something that shouldn't have that the government shouldn't have done that the sedition trial shouldn't have been pursued that John Rogge um, was over his skis when he was going after these guys it just kind of stuck in academic history um, in non-academic history there is quite a bit written about this and it's all written mm-hmm. by neo-nazis and fascists and people who are rooting for these guys and guess what those folks aren't very influential in terms of making public facing history or convincing academics uh, to get involved like it, it, I did find in the archival research that I did on the sedition trial defendants uh, I did find myself in some pretty uncomfortable locations uh, in terms of who was writing about this folks these folks who who were who was collecting their papers and who was uh, making sure that the historical record includes includes their perspective on it um, fascists and neo-nazis love this history because they think it was a high water mark for them I agree it was a high water mark for them but I love it for different reasons I love it because of the people who were fighting against them Absolutely. Well, you know, and I think you've hit on a really important point here, which is that the narratives we tell ourselves as Americans, you know, there are deeply uncomfortable parts of American history, of course, but this is not one of those that has really been talked about all that much, as you say, in the mainstream of academia. But that, I think, is why the work that you're doing is so important. And that's what we're trying to do on this podcast as well is, is, is bring back some of this history. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the inaugural episode of Star Spangled Fascism. I hope you'll listen to the series. I hope you'll enjoy it and uh, and enjoy hearing some of these historic figures, as troubling as they are, sort of speaking speaking from the past. But thank you again for being here. I'm so glad that you are doing this. I'm honored to be here on the inaugural episode. Um, uh, Godspeed, Bradley. This is going to be great. Congratulations. Thank, thank, you, thank you. Thank you so much. The book is prequel. Fantastic book. Available wherever books are sold. Congratulations again, Rachel. And thank you so much. Thanks, Bradley. Here on the Star-Spangled Fascism podcast, we'll be looking at all those people and groups that Rachel and I talked about. We'll be doing a deep dive on the men and women who led those movements, the ideas they advocated, the people who supported them, and the Americans who fought against them. In our next episode, we'll examine the German-American Bund, a group led by an ambitious man who called himself a Nazi and who hoped to build a version of the Third Reich right here in the U.S. He attracted thousands of followers all over the country, but dramatically met his match when he was confronted by a 26-year-old plumber in Madison Square Garden. This program was edited by Brian Fantanelli, mixed and mastered by Joseph Powers, and executive produced by Brendan Gokel. Be sure to subscribe to the Star Spangled Fascism podcast wherever you get your podcasts, on our YouTube page, and follow us now on social media. If you have a question about the podcast, email us at questions at starspangledfascismpodcast.com. I'm Bradley W. Hart. Thank you for listening.